Bajayanta Mukhopadhyay is a Bengali settler who's lived in Teotihuacan for over two decades. Bajayanta also works in Treaty 3 and 9 territories as well as with undocumented migrants, unhoused people, and queer and trans youth in the city. He's a clinical faculty member at the McGill Department of Family Medicine, focusing on supporting rural and low-resource practice. Mukhopadhyay organizes around issues related to extractivism, migrant rights, policing, public services, and decolonizing global health within local and international networks and collectives. Alexis Shotwell is a professor in Carleton University's Department of Sociology and Anthropology on unceded Algonquin land. Her academic work addresses impurity, environmental justice, racial formation, disability, sexuality, gender, and political transformation. She's the co-investigator for the AIDS Activist History Project and the author of Knowing Otherwise, Race, Gender, and Implicit Understanding from 2011 and Against Purity, Living Ethically in Compromised Times from 2016. I spoke with her about the latter book near the beginning of the pandemic. Alexis, Baj, and I discuss Baj's new book from Fernwood Publishing, Country of Poxes, Three Germs, and the Taking of Territory. In Country of Poxes, we get an innovative technique for telling the history of colonialism and its effects on past and present capacities for collective survival, threatened as they are and have always been by microscopic entities that enter our bodies and undermine, in many cases, a misplaced and sinister pretense to mastery. If we are not masters who dominate and control the world of infection, and if we have not learned that this was a fiction from the start, from the COVID-19 pandemic, we may never learn. What or who are we? In this conversation, we talk about the question of culpability. Baja's book prompts Alexis to think about agency and how illness is distributed. In her reading, its argument stresses how social actors have made consequential choices in the past and how, as Baj writes in the book, quote, reflecting on these experiences in the past can enable those of us who believe in a more just, a more healed future to contribute in some way to cobbling together a truer liberation. You won't just learn a lot by reading Country of Poxes, a text that focuses on the colonial continua of smallpox, tuberculosis, and syphilis. You'll also learn, I think, to think differently about the tendency to accept suffering and death. The book historicizes contemporary diagnostic tools, dominant and subordinate ideologies of care in health, as well as the struggle for radical alternatives to the fragile healthcare systems we currently have. One of the most rewarding parts of this conversation, from my perspective, was talking about how to name and identify the enemy, the antagonist, how to sketch out who or what we oppose so as to generate the required amount of solidarity and shared feeling. I got a lot out of Baja's way of formulating the question of solidarity. He talked about how, quote, it's impossible to act without knowing what you're acting upon, but insisted that this not be a stable, unchanging target. More than anything, the approach he takes encourages us to step back and see the bigger picture which materializes as an atomizing system that forces people to move way out of their comfort zone, their home, in order to receive care in highly technocratic environments that are almost invariably universally alienating experiences. 
The goal, in part, is to convince people involved in healthcare and health communication that questioning the answers and reevaluating realism could be a vital tactic in the battle to restore a welfare state, or better, produce a social democratic state where health is fairly distributed, and better still, a decolonized social sphere in which there is less need for treatment because we have identified ecologically the common drivers of disease. Some of this may sound utopian, but it is really just necessary. To this end, Baj explains how, quote, capitalism and colonialism can be somewhat abstract as words, leading to a sense that articulating views that oppose these systems is laughable or utopian. But the truth is that in Baj's words, quote, extractivism is something that people see happening. So the work should involve leading us to recognize that the seemingly clean places that many of us reside in are actually the beneficiaries of extractive processes, to quote Alexis in this conversation. How, where, and when can folks interlace their knowing with acts of changing things in the world? You know, I want to obviously thank you both um, for, you know, joining me to talk about Country of Poxes, Three Germs, and the Taking of Territory. Um, a thoroughgoing history of um, the intersections between three diseases and land theft, settler colonialism, dispossession. And, you know, I, I want to open things up, really, uh, rather than try and sort of um, steer the conversation. Uh, but, you know, to kick things off, I guess, I wanted to ask about, um, because I've got, you know, Alexis Shot Shotwell here as well, Um I wanted to ask about this question of how, as you put it in the book, infectious diseases circulate all the time through, you know, trade and migration um, and all of these things. And they, they have done so, as you say, since times deemed prehistorical. And, and here's where I think I see some intersections between what you're writing here and, and what Alexis has written elsewhere. You say, living in fellowship with us, infectious organisms thrive on our inherent sociability and curiosity but biological determinants alone do not shape the course of an epidemic, the socio-political context within which it's experienced and the response to it influence outcomes too. I'm curious, Alexis, your thoughts on sort of um, how the book maybe resonates with your writing on like entanglement, relational ontology and those kinds of things. But um, did you want to speak to that idea, that kind of overarching idea that you know, diseases are social. And in some ways, the the effects of diseases are the product of social engineering. Yeah, I mean, I think there's so much here that really, I was so thrilled to read this book. And so much of it um, resonates with stuff that I've done in the past about purity. Um, but also, your book, Baj, really um, is helping me a lot in current work that I'm doing. Um, so I, I basically have a list of things that I could just spend the entire time we have together thinking about. Mm -hmm. um, but I think, yeah, one of the things that I love is the the insistence in this book and then the sort of unpacking and untangling of, um, you know, one of these central, central propositions that you have, which is that um, our agency as people determines the... Uh, experience and reality of illness, you know, how it's distributed, who bears it, who benefits from it. Um, so, yeah, so as a start, I would say the the 
way that you interleave that insight, right? That because we're because we're entangled, because we're connected, we're never innocent, we're never pure, but there's a distribution of who is made to suffer um, and we can take responsibility for that. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, at the end of the, of the first section, you're talking about the, the suffering that comes with being sick and you say the suffering can be monumental, but the front lines are not only drawn between us and them, us and organisms that make us sick. Uh, For it is not only these single-celled organisms that choose who will suffer, how, and for how long. We choose to. Mm -hmm. And so I just, I really love the call all through this book to choose differently, to see how we've chosen in the past, and then to not continue choosing that for the future. Well, thanks. Thanks, Alexis. Um, I, I think that was probably one of the drivers for me in the book. And I think what one of the things I struggle with is, you know, as a clinician, I'm I'm a pragmatist. I'm like, people get sick. You know, mm-hmm. that's just that's just life, that's just what happens. And it's so easy in the course of day-to-day clinical work to just deal with that. Like, okay, someone's sick, you just you just deal with it, right? And you see that person, especially the way we've designed care systems now, we often see people in isolation. There's no you, you, we we don't see them in their own context. We make them come into a context, into institutions uh, that are highly technical, highly isolating, highly highly atomizing, and divorce people from their actual context. And so it's very easy not to see the bigger picture. There's a big part of me that's just that, that you, know, you have to do the work and that's it. Um, so this book was really me trying to take that step back out, you know, like, you know, I work in the system and the the syphilis story really struck me. It's like, there must have been a way that this entire history has reverberations to this day. And in the case of syphilis, it wasn't really who was, it's not really the question of day-to-day care, but it's like the story that's been told about it. And I was just like, well, I have a feeling it must have influenced the way I deliver care now. Like it's it's such a big, big story uh, and the story continues to this day. There's still so much uh, debate and um, discussion about this story that it must influence what I do today. And so the book really started off as me trying to figure that out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, um, I could follow that up with um, a question, I guess, about like just the kind of the sense that the reader gets that you are such a a situated knower, like a, a knower who is trying to know how he knows and how he practices and how he can practice better. Um, you know, the, the thing that you say is that um, there are, there are ways that we can gain from understanding the history of our healing practices. Um, and that you're aware of these kinds of um, these gaps in your knowledge. Like you say, there was so, so much I had not been taught um, there was beauty and wealth in all that I had been told to dismiss. And that, uh, you know, reminded me of, of Alexis's phrase in Against Purity, that there are histories that are hard to remember well. Remembering them well, like remembering them in a way that we can like operationalize the knowledge changes a lot of uh, in terms of how we, you know, not just do our jobs, but how we just are in the world. Um, but in your case, yeah, I mean, you talk about the um, the past reverberating in the present in a way that you you feel maybe not conscious enough of. And then like you, you're giving us these moments where you're talking about 
the the moments where you become conscious of it uh, of that thing. So you mentioned syphilis screening. Um, you say that like you know, knowing its history, you might make more of an effort to name it, to lay out the logic of testing, to describe its benefits and its risks, and to elicit your patient's feelings about it. And so I guess I wondered if beyond those sort of just um, everyday practices, which are so important, there were things that you fundamentally unlearned and then and then gained by writing the book. Was, the, you know, was the course of writing the book transformative in both like small and philosophical ways? Mm -hmm. I think, I think the big thing, you know, I think that I always knew, but the book really made me, I, you know, I haven't figured out a way to operationalize it in any way in my life, but just, um, it really brought to the foreground the sense that um, medicine is effective. The, the way we practice medicine today is effective and useful just because it has taken so much, you know, that it mm -hmm. took labor, it took knowledge, it took resources, and that's why it works, you know? Mm -hmm. And I think that's really um, been something that's um, maybe started to transform, you know, in slow ways, the way I approach it. I, I think I always had the sense, I was always a little bit suspicious of it, but I couldn't really name it. I didn't really know you know, all these tools I'm learning, I was always a little bit wary of them. But now I kind of am able to kind of name and frame my discomfort in some ways. And it's changed my relationships to other forms of practice and other forms of healing. Um, mm -hmm. And to think about, yeah, I think I think it's just, it's, I, I was always someone who wanted to kind of learn other ways of doing this work. But now mm -hmm. it's something that's a little bit more fundamental to, to, to understand that there have been systems of knowledge that have been decimated, repressed, and to, to treat those knowledge systems and to invest in their um, uh, renaissance, their rebirth, their, like, their continued survival has become something that's a little bit more important to me now. It's so interesting, like the, the syphilis chapter in particular, well, no, all of them, but I was really, the syphilis chapter in particular is really helpful for me right now. Um, do, you, do either of you know this book called The Making of a Scientific Fact, Ludwig Fleck? No. No. Okay. So I'm a little bit obsessed with this book. It's a, it's a 1935 <laughs> book. Oh, sorry. Genesis and Development of a Scientific Fact. So Fleck was someone, he was a Polish Jew who was a phlebotomist. Am I saying that right? He was a blood guy. Yeah. Um, so um, this book was like... Uh, Thomas Kuhn's book, The Structure of Scientific Revolutions in the field of science studies that I work in is much better known. He, you know, he talks about paradigm shifts in science, but he credits a lot of his ideas to Fleck's book, which wasn't translated in, for many years after um, The Structure of Scientific Revolutions. And Fleck's book is about syphilis. Hmm. It's about um, how did syphilis come to be known as a disease entity? Mm -hmm. um, and he does this very cool thing that is also, I think, really speaks to something that you're asking, Baj, when you say, surely the way that I practice medicine is connected with, with syphilis, with how syphilis has been conceived of and materially produced and treated. Mm -hmm. And so Fleck, he's like, facts don't exist. They're made, right? And they're made up of in collectivities. And he has this beautiful conception of like how science happens in a a community of persons mutually exchanging ideas. Um, and he says, 
you only have a conversation produces um, not just knowledge, but also ways of thinking that cannot happen outside of that particular collectivity. And like when you Mm -hmm. form a new collectivity, it changes. So he says, uh, facts are like stabilizations of ways of thinking. He calls them thought styles that come out of the particular collective conversation. And so syphilis, he, he has this whole account of like the way that the way that initially people were um, thinking about the depends, dependence of syphilis on uh, climate and season and constitution, and then that moved into being just a sort of like, can we see it, you know, on a on a screen, if we're looking at it in a microscope? All these things. Mm-hmm. But what's totally missing from his account is everything that's in your account, um, right? So I think in reading this, I was like, ah, this is showing the way that the the making of this fact of syphilis was also a making of the fact of Canada, right? Like it, Mm. that, that a thought style was produced through medicine being a colonial project that was intimately involved with the creation of this place, right? What we currently call Canada. But like I said, I'm a little obsessed with the book right now. So it was very exciting to read more about syphilis that I didn't know anything about. To, and to get so much like granular detail um, into the the kind of um, lived reality of these, um, you know, these kind of detonating effects, uh, you know, this is something that I see working through Baj when you write, for example, that we don't have access to a parallel universe where those knowledge systems might have developed further. Um, I think there's there's certainly like I I really want to read that book. Um, in terms of trying to understand the relationship between context and the definition of a disease. And I think like um, there's, yeah, there's so much uh, texture to this text. You've gone into the archive, you're situating yourself in this past that has reverberations in the present. Tracing the story of syphilis in this case means recognizing that we do not live in many possible worlds, like this is this is to me um, one of the major insights is that there, you know, things could have been otherwise. Other knowledge systems could have developed to treat disease, but they they didn't because of, as you say in the book, um, the decimation caused by imperial might. I'm curious to hear what you what you think about this idea that um, the material reality of a disease is actually like you know shaped by the history of colonialism. I mean, this is this is a conversation that go, that could go on for a very long time because I think mm. diagnosis in and of itself is uh, socially determined. You know, I, I think the way we understand um, what conditions people are suffering from, they shift with time, they shift with place, um, mm. they shift with language, and so I think you know, as I was writing the book, it became more and more clear to me. Well, of course, what was happening around people was going to have an influence on the way they understood the body and illness, because the ideas that were permeating through um, just the ethers at that time, I feel, would have an imp- have implications on the way people uh, understood disease. And mm-hmm. I think that's really, really very clear, um, particularly in maybe syphilis and smallpox, where you can see these kind of contested discourses, like the people who are experiencing it for the first time, um, people trying to grapple with uh, what it meant, where it came from. Um, and none of them, none of those interpretations were wrong. I think so much of that is dependent on what was happen- happening around them. And the, the colonial endeavor 
through basically through appropriation, managed to kind of win out in a sense because it had people, power, and uh, money. You know, is what it had. Mm-hmm. And so the way we understand diseases now, you know, now now I find it's very difficult to separate that understanding from you know even understanding things like what we see now, like lupus or mm-hmm. HIV or like all of that to me is now like, like, oh, well, I understand where this comes from now in a way maybe I didn't actually really understand before. Hmm. I mean, this is like one of the things that when people read your book, I think they'll have the experience I did of, of feeling like, oh, I get that. And then it still is like a, you know, galaxy brain experience to to say this medical practice works as well as it does, or these ways of doing care work as well as they do because of the expropriation and extraction of time, energy, resources um, that allowed people working in this in this mode to deepen and develop and you know transform practices, right? Like there's a there's a kind of deep assumption that the reason that uh, what we think of as Western medicine works is because it's better medicine. Right. And so having that insight that like, there could have been so many other excellent medicines, had we not uh, gone with capitalism and colonialism as our collective choice uh, is really wonderful. Yeah. And I mean, you're also not just sort of presenting it as your own sort of, uh, property, this knowledge that you've created. It's it's an insight that you've gleaned from, as you say in the book, um, working with anti-extractive organizers across the Americas who look at health as something shared by all living things. This idea that it comes not um, from innovation as such, but from this like broader thing, this thing that is about, you know, multiple systems working together and in, in this web of life, like something far more radically holistic. Um, and so I, I just think you this this book is like you sort of straining against um, the edifice that you've been sort of assigned as a pragmatic like clinician and saying like studying the colonizer as a as a means of trying to push against um, strategies of surveillance of of biomedicine and, and technocracy basically, and even if you haven't operationalized it, it's it's a book that like provides a different. Um, what was the term? Uh, thought style, a different mm-hmm. thought style, um, you know, that's counter to an extractivist logic. And I guess like because that uh, move of studying the colonizer has become, uh, you know, an increasingly, you know, a, a thing that in the academy, at least, and maybe in, in activist spaces, you know, it's it's more possible, more imaginable to do that work. It's also now possible to sort of put extractivism on the table um, and to sort of like disentangle it from extraction and say like, this is actually a worldview um, that we've been assigned. Um, so like there are a couple moments where you're using that term extractive, extractivist. Um, how crucial for you is that term in a way for like turning our our thinking back on uh, a kind of colonial mindset? Um, it's become something that's become very important to me just through some organizing and activist work I've been doing over the last 10 years with the people's health movement. And it, it's sort of an improbable place for me. I never thought of myself as someone who particularly understood, you know, I came to this through anti-mining work that was happening around me. I wasn't even, not even very 
deeply involved in it. But um, I'm part of the People's Health Movement, which is a network of health justice activists across the world. And um, in 2012, so exactly 10 years ago, I happened to go to one of their health assemblies in South Africa because I happened to be in South Africa at that point. And it was Latin American health activists who were saying, you know, we have to deal with the fact that mining and sort of forestry and big agro uh, industrial initiatives are the things that are having the most impact on our lives. And mining was the big thing. And they, I was probably one of two Canadians in this very large uh, gathering. And I happened to be at this extractive uh, meeting and they turned to me and said, you know, and as part of, part of the people's health movement in Canada, um, because Canadian companies are so central to um, the health impacts we are suffering, it's up to you as a chapter mm. to deal with it. Mm. And that's really what triggered it for me. And you know, over the last 10 years, there's been a lot of organizing, there's been a lot of thinking um, to kind of bring health. You know, I think there's you know long history of anti-mining work in Canada, but what we've been doing as a collective here in Canada is try to bring kind of health justice to the center of that and to think about, well, that, what does that mean for this larger health? And we've been learning too. And there's lots of debates about, you know, what's his relationship to understanding capitalism and what's his relationship to understanding colonialism. And to me, it's um, a lens that helps me understand how people actually experience capitalism and colonialism. You know, it's like mm -hmm. capitalism and colonialism can seem somewhat abstract as words, but extraction is something people see happening in front. They actually see like things being, the earth being torn up. And, and I think it's been very helpful for me to, to use it as another lens and to kind of use that lens and expanding it to think about how we use the environment, the ecosystem. We have built this system that just extracts for our own benefit and almost, ne almost never shares. Mm -hmm. I never thought it would, but it's become a very kind of influential sort of lens for me to how I understand the world. So it probably permeates through some of the writing. Yeah, it certainly comes up at particular moments. Um, trying to make these connections clear is is obviously part of the the project of the book. Um, but sorry, Alexis, did you want to uh, offer anything uh, in response to that? Well, I think you know, I when I moved to Ottawa from Sudbury, which is a um, one of the places where Canadian um, mining depredation is happening in Canada. Not the only place, obviously. Uh, when I moved from Sudbury to Ottawa, I had this having this experience that Ottawa is so clean and so rich. You know, the streets are so smooth um, <laughs> because Sudbury is so devastated and potholed and covered in sulfuric acid. You know, like I. Right. So just that feeling of recognizing the places that we are as the beneficiaries of extractive practices. Yeah. You repeatedly come back to that kind of complexity of like seeing when you're the beneficiary of extractivism, but also when that benefit is unevenly distributed. So yeah, anyway, I, I think I just, I kept thinking as I was reading this about racism and the differences between my experience moving to Canada as a teenager, right? Not, to Mi'kma'ki where no one invited me or my family and yours um, and the ways that 
I guess just like, yeah, the ways that whiteness distributes harm and what it means to be differentially situated as beneficiaries of that. And, and being called to sort of, yeah, account for that, um, that often unwitting, um, you know, taking up of space that kind of, you know, uh, um, blunt and, and unself-reflexive taking up of space. Uh, and, and too, I mean, like just this idea of being in a space where there is so much invisibilized harm. And in Canada, if you're walking down the streets of Toronto, you're seeing um, financial institutions that are responsible for harm that is, of course, not immediately in your proximity. What you're seeing are, um, you know, a financial district that is, as you say, sort of clean, sanitized of the violence that it's causing around the world through especially the mining industry through these extractive industries. But I wonder, Baj, to your point, whether... Um, extraction being something that is now more visible in some ways, if that distance is collapsing, if there's a sense that now, you know, the the boundaries are more porous between the banks that finance rapacious extraction um, and the human consequences. These are certainly like histories that are hard to remember well and hard to sort of narrate convincingly. I think people are seeing it. And I think we've noticed ever since COVID-19, I think people, I've, I've noticed in the mainstream media, people talking about, oh, I think we're, we're extending our reach to a point, our extractive tentacles are reaching far enough in that we're beginning to see the consequences, you know? And I think people have always seen the consequences, just rich parts of the world haven't. And now the rich parts of the world are seeing it. And that's, that's the difference, you know? I mean, the other thing that probably, I don't know if it, it's very obvious in the book, but I, I wrote it, I started writing it before COVID-19 and sort of COVID-19 helped me push push the book forward in many ways because I was like, oh, well, so many of the things that I was seeing made me so furious. I was like perpetually angry <laughs> and still am. But this idea that, you know, the kind of these words of like unprecedented and we've never, and a lot of, the, a lot of this book was me saying, no, it's not unprecedented. It's just that you're, we're seeing it now. We in the kind of protected bubble wrapped world are, are actually seeing it now. It's piercing our armor. Um, mm-hmm. And the same thing with monkeypox, you know, the fact that, oh, the fact that there has been an outbreak in Nigeria since 2017, <laughs> nobody seemed to worry about it until it came to the rich world. And I was actually, during the editorial per- uh, process, um, I was asked, it's like, oh, with monkeypox, do you want to make a reference to what's happening now? Because I, I make reference to it. Um, I'd written about it when talking about different pox viruses. And I said, oh, and, you know, monkeypox is, uh, is, is a pox virus. There's been an outbreak since 2017 in Nigeria. And I was asked, oh, do you want to change that sentence? And I said, no, nothing has changed for me. Like there has been an outbreak since 2017 in Nigeria. And the fact that we've done nothing about it for five years now means that it's spread like what I don't know what people actually <laughs> expected you know and mm-hmm. so I think we're beginning to see that things um in very real ways what our kind of tentacles of extraction are being to 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 do and we're seeing the consequences and by we I mean um people in the rich capitalist world are being to see it I think most of the world has always known it absolutely and I think there's been attempts to sort of I name what it is, the kind of condition uh, that wealth produces that that leads to this specific, um, you know, this this in- incapacity to see or to care. 
And you're doing that here too. Like you talk about the cocoon of hubris uh, in the book to kind of um, extend what you were saying, like the assumption that this is unprecedented, um, that it, it it came out of nowhere, that it's this thing that, um, you know, uh, blindsided us is naive to the extreme in your words. Um, so it's, it's interesting, like all the ways in which the book is trying to, um, you know, uh, help us make the the like links clear between something like smallpox and monkeypox, this unique human affliction in one case, but then this other thing, monkeypox, that is not, that is, it, it's another example of zoonotic spillover. And there's all these kind of moments too in the book where um, you're trying to show how naive too this assumption of a stable border between animal, uh, which say human animal, non-human animal is um, all of these perilous assumptions that we make um, that if we were just, you know, I sense you're saying like, if we were just a little bit more sensitive to the critical nature of these entanglements, you know, we would, we would have a more robust ability to respond um, to these things that have been with us forever. But uh, Alexis, did you want to, I mean, I know you've written on the fact that COVID-19 is a relation as you've put it and how it reinforced the kind of porousness of bodies. I have to imagine you have a lot to say um, on this particular point and how Baj is thinking through at the end of the book, uh, the question of what COVID-19 has kind of taught us. I keep thinking about, there's this sentence in the final chapter of Fever's Future um, where you say, it's harder for wounds to heal when they are continuously inflicted as they are in settler states. And um, I think <laughs> early... Early in the pandemic, I in the COVID-19 pandemic, I thought I felt really optimistic about the the number of um, people who were coming together. Like, I, re I really did think there was this danger of turning toward a particular mode or mood of um, thinking that, you know, uh, ethno-state borders were going to protect anyone and... Um, there were many things that we did, right, that were good and important. Um, but the the turn to thinking that some people could be protected and that we should do that by this kind of inward turn. And I was like very excited that there was debate about those things. And I felt like viruses are always relations. They can show us what different forms of relation could be. Um, people in those early days, we remember, were you know, mutual aid networks were exploding. People were really trying to take care of each other. There was language for saying we're, we're physically dis distancing, but we need to have lots of social solidarity and really take seriously the way that some people are being sacrificed so that other people can, you know, order things on the internet and get food delivered. And I have to say, like, even six months ago, I still had quite a lot of optimism about the way that the pandemic, as Arundhati Roy wrote, could be a portal, right, into a, a different social organization of care. And there's something now where I feel much less optimistic about that. And I, I am trying, I'm struggling to figure out how to think about um, forms of being together that you say, Baj, if, looking back at these previous previous epidemics, um, you say we took what the devastation of previous epidemics had left us and tried to find ways forward. Mm. Um, and, you know, we can do the same now. So that's one of the things that I'm really 
that I found very beautiful and helpful in the book is being reminded that this kind of devastation has been visited upon people and those people did not allow themselves to be eradicated. They practiced forms of care and collective agency. Um, and so that I ought not be so despairing. Mm. Yeah, I don't have anything useful to say about COVID, <laughs> I think. But I, but if you do, Bosh, I would really love to hear it because what you said in the book so far was helpful for me. Same. Yeah, I, I don't really know. Um, if I have anything useful to say at this point, I felt like I had a lot more to say, like many people earlier. And I think the one thing that I have that thinking through the book has helped me is to think about just time and just um, mm. things take time to be born is what I've been thinking like you know and I think maybe we're we're learning we're processing maybe at this point and the things we've learned will will emerge and I think within formal healthcare setting you know we're we're a little bit stunned. Um, the, the healthcare system is still very fragile, like healthcare systems all over the world are still very fragile. Um, and so there's no real scope to try and try and make things different. But I think people have processed and people have learned. And I think once people catch their breath a little bit, I think, you know, revolutions take time. And so that's what I've been thinking. Mm. Yeah, I love that. And I, you know, the other, another part that was, just such a beautiful thread throughout the book is this this attention to health being a state that is really complicated and that we can pay attention to a lot of the determinants that make someone well or ill um and that that's always been something that was not primarily about i mean so it is like it is demoralizing to see what we're doing to healthcare systems healthcare workers um, and and maybe in like in the chapters on smallpox and tuberculosis, your emphasis on the way that it was the social material practices of how people were together that produced disproportionate death, right? What Ruth Wilson Gilmore calls the group vulnerability to premature death, or the state-sanctioned or produced group vulnerability to premature death, as her definition of racism, um, that that like ways of pushing back against premature death aren't maybe even primarily what we think of as medical, but there are these other things like having good places to live and enough food to eat and also time, time for rest, time for connection. So that is a, a really helpful lesson from the book that I think opens terrain for of struggle for social struggle. Yeah. And I think it's so critical. I think um, especially for us, in what what remains of say of the Canadian welfare state, I think so much of you know there's so many different ways of um, organizing for a more just, uh, more caring future. And you know, people who there are there are movements who still you know, and I'm part of them sometimes of like thinking that maybe we can salvage or rescue what remains of the welfare state. Um, and I think it's so important. Um, especially for us who are within the formal healthcare system, to 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 say that you know, um, yeah, sure, universal healthcare needs money, 
but we'd actually probably spend a lot less on you know technical health services if people had adequate housing people were eating okay they had um you know what the things they needed to survive if they had those and didn't have to struggle and stress over them we'd actually probably end up spending a lot less on hospitals and health professionals and um and i think making that central to struggles around redistribution within um the nation state with within kind of welfare state models i think that's actually really key looking for radical solutions rather than reactive ones or reformist ones um it, it would be incredible i mean i love this idea that revolutions take time but i wonder like what sort of um notion of revolution were working with there that we're imagining there because there there are revolutions in thinking there are revolutions that come from people being able to imagine um you know other other ways of being but then there are these these maybe more infrastructural revolutions um that change the conditions under which people live I, you know like this to me is what ruth and ruth wilson gilmore is so um especially lately been so insightful on is just trying to make it clear that there there are two uh, uh, related but distinct kind of modes of revolutionary politics on the left, one that is largely about knowledge and, and writing and communication, and the other that is about trying to win, <laughs> as it were, like trying to um, you know gain power, gain political power and traction. Um, so that definition of racism from uh, Ruth Wilson Gilmore is is a ubiquitous thing that I, in a way, I mean, she's noted this recently in a dig interview, just that it is a it is a thing she sees on walls. It's it's a thing that now has this level of um, saturation, and that represents a certain revolution in the imagination. But there still needs to be, as she says, this push toward freedom being um, place specific and bound to, uh, you know particular like yeah like polities municipalities places where people you know can thrive um and that to me is like the 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 problem that we face and the one that i see articulated so uh convincingly in the book is the idea that like change at the level of official politics of government is so profoundly slow um that it, and and there is such a crisis of care right now that a revolution, like I, I, I hear you saying that a revolution takes time, but I also sense you saying in the book that there isn't time. You know, the way that you talk about how the the the, for example, like contemporary austerity has eroded a lot of these sorts of um, you know provisions that primarily health distribution in Canada is now just like chronically underfunded to the point where there's a debate in Canada about you know the how how to confront the crisis of of healthcare and a renewed push for privatization, which would be catastrophic. Um, so I wondered if you know you wanted to address that particular like trend that we're seeing in discourse around health in Canada, this move toward considering like private clinics as a crisis measure, um, and if you wanted to like punch holes in that <laughs> logic. And while you're doing that, <laughs> could you just tell people like I didn't know this stuff about the difference between the British system and the Canadian system. So like, I just didn't know that about physicians in Canada. So mm. I think if you could also say something about that. Oh yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I think, oh, there's, there's so much there and I don't know if, 
I'll be able to do it justice. First of all, this idea of like, what needs to, what do we need to do now? And for me, just because of my work and where I am, for me, it's like I'm thinking about the revolution and the way we sort of care for each other, you know, our caring systems. And every society, any, any sort of future we imagine will need to include how we imagine how we care for each other because people need care, right? Like people will be sick, people will be, will have bad days, people will go through crises and we'll need to figure out how we're caring for each other in this imagined future. And so for me, that revolution is probably the revolution I think about most just because that's where my day-to-day -day life is. And um, there, and uh, yeah, there, there isn't time because people are sick and suffering now. But I also think we do have time to, to figure out what, what it's going to look like because I think what's terrible is to kind of just rush in and find stopgap measures, which I think is what rushing to private capital to solve our current uh, crises is very short-sighted, very, um, you know, a stopgap measure, which, um, you know, conveniently profit, give, you know, allows some people to profit off of the crisis, um, mm -hmm. but really does not solve any sort of situations in the long term. And I, and I, you know, I don't think it's new. I think anytime there's been a crisis in like, um, in the health system of some sort, there has been this sort of um, immediate recourse to, well, 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 this is what we can do. Um, and I think the the kind of people who are poised to profit off of crisis are always hovering. They're, they're sort of like circling, always ready to find that opportunity where they can, they can dive in. So I actually sort of roll my eyes a little bit when I hear it now, just because I'm like, well, that's just predictable. You know, I think we have to be ready to fight it because I don't think it actually solves anything, but I think it's also just, well, this is what these people will say <laughs> whenever there's a crisis, you know? And so it's always the same actors. It's always the, the same networks who want to say this thing. So it's just uh, one of those those uh, things to prepare for, I think, when, when we go through crisis in our contemporary health system. But I think, you know, the, what the revolution I imagine is actually much broader than that. You know, it's kind of really rethinking the sort of technocratic, institution-heavy way of caring for each other. But yeah, when it comes to health systems, yeah, I mean, the NHS in England is unfortunately um, unrecognizable at this point after decades of um, austerity in the UK. And um, maybe its original intent is a little bit more apparent in Scotland and, and Wales, which have... Um, uh, retain control over the, in some ways, the original spirit of the NHS. But yeah, like there, there's sort of four models. There's four, there's four models of uh, funding healthcare systems. And I think what happens in Canada is that we get confused between um, who's providing the care and who's paying for the care. Um, in Britain, the NHS is the government paying for the care and also providing it. The hospitals are run by the government. The doctors are salaried by the government. Uh, everything is sort of uh, the government. And that's that's a national health service. In Canada, what we have is that the government in general, not for everybody, not all the time, will pay for your care, but it's not providing it. The hospitals aren't necessarily. There might be a few that are run by ministries of health, but generally not. The doctors are certainly not employees of, of the government. And so that's the distinction and i think what we forget in Canada is, is that does leave room for the profit mobile actually exist within our system 
And so the, the providers are private generally, are often are private in Canada, but we've decided that that's okay as long as nobody has to pay for that upfront. And that's why the government pays, you know, that's the pool of funds we use to pay for that. Um, and I think that distinction is actually very critical to the way we understand our system in Canada. Um, and it's really helpful to think about the way we we think about health systems in the future. And, and thinking about the way people are paying for it is actually quite different from who's actually providing the care. Just trying to streamline and simplify and, and prioritize care in ways that, you know, um, make hope convincing in this case would be really, you know, uh, meaningful for people. I think like people, their heads spin when they try and conceptualize this, this whole system. And this is part of the reason why I like the, the framing of the book, which has you positioning yourself within it as not necessarily, um, pure, uh, to use a a term that uh, Alexis uses, uses, of course, a lot in her work to understand, um, how knowledge, you know, um, people who have knowledge experts sort of use it to, um, you know, argue particular points and leverage action. You know, the idea here is to say that you are also complicit as a person who provides care as a private actor within the system. And I wondered if you wanted to like just unpack some of the moments in the book where you're you're trying to just sort of engage with the fact that you are, as you put it, like a continuation perhaps of a system of health surveillance um, that maintains Canada's commercial interests. I mean, um, it's it's big business as well, and you are operating within it and sort of saying like, yeah, like I too am contaminated by a system that is built around uh, a certain kind of top-down, very hierarchical model of experts and the people that they provide their expertise to. It's hard to answer because I think that's something I struggle with every day. And I think every day is something I have to think about where, I mean, there's lots of different sorts of ways to think about it, but I really think about it in preventative care. Because in preventative care, which for a long time was like the forefront of like your progressive healthcare work we were focused on making sure people didn't get to that point where they were suffering, right? Um, But I increasingly sometimes find myself saying, I'm trying to convince someone who is feeling well, who doesn't really want to talk to me (laughs) about why they should do this thing for something that maybe might happen in the future. And I'm like, who, what, who is this conversation actually serving? So that's one thing I, I think about a lot, you know, and I think in a healthcare system like Canada's where, you know, we are using public funds or co- collectively pooled funds that are managed by the state, the state's interest in kind of keeping control over those resources, it, it does influence what we do. And I think, you know, we actually talk about it in the States. It's like, oh, these huge insurance companies are trying to hold on to their profit. And that's why they push preventative care. When it comes to kind of we don't talk about it in the same way because that's not what the structures are but in essence i'm like well isn't that kind of what's happening way mm-hmm. and so i've started to question some of, some of that yeah um that question of suffering and how to address suffering um is something that i've you know been engaging with like in my health communication class this term which is a graduate qu- class that has really like an unbelievably diverse cross-section of students represented from you know, students who are from Lebanon, Mexico, Nigeria, Ghana, like from all over the world. And they're bringing in their own worldviews and their own kind of cultural assumptions about things like responsibility in particular, responsibility for one's own care, one's own health. Um, that seems to be a dominant theme. So, you know, just recently, I know this isn't really the focus of the the book per se, 
but we've been talking about the, you know, the opioids epidemic and the question of how to provide care to people who uh, perhaps are currently experiencing acute pain or were and are addicted to opioids. This is, um, you know, a situation in which it's it's very sort of easy to castigate either the user or um, the kind of, you know, uh, the Sackler family, Purdue Pharma and these major pharmaceutical companies, but it's hard to sort of see the whole picture. The pandemic saw a massive spike, um, you know, in some cases, as much as a 40% increase of people dying as a result of opioids overdoses. And that speaks directly to the question of like, whether care is available to people addiction services and so on, or not, right? That's, it's a life or death question. In these circumstances where there's, um, where there's a lot of complexity and yet there is a definite locus of responsibility, how do we name the enemies, right? And, right. and then how do we figure out how to have um, sort of strategic um, goals that can be collectively generated and, shared and that don't determine what tactics we use to move toward them right so that that mm -hmm. people who are really differentially situated can um share a goal and do different things toward it right so if one of the things we want as a strategic goal is for more people to not suffer and not die um like how we can find the place that we have traction on that um and and pull there. I guess I keep I keep looking at the places where people have done this. You know, where uh, whether it's um, doing a real analysis of how the opioid crisis, so-called the overdose crisis, has been created um, through pharma capital, um, and then like the various different ways that people push back against that through. I mean, I'm most inspired by direct collective action around overdose prevention sites. Um, you know, I, I look at the history of AIDS activism, which um, with my colleague, Gary Kinsman, we did this oral history project about AIDS activism in Canada. And it was just really beautiful to look at how people took whatever they were attached to, like whatever they had some traction on, and used that as a way in to trying to make it be possible for more people to live and to live good lives. Um, and just like how that shifts the conversation, right? Like if if we refuse to accept suffering and death as inevitable, something unexpected can happen. So if we're just like, if we can say like, we want everyone who's in pain to have, we want everyone who's in pain to have enough pain meds. And that's not inconsistent with the way that drug prescriptions have shaped people's pain experience, the way that all of these things, you know, unfurl. Um, yeah. I mean, the, obviously the, the tricky thing of trying to name your enemy um, is, is, you know, something that Baj, you're taking up in the book, especially in the smallpox chapter. Uh, but even there, you're saying like gauging the degree of exterminative violence is futile and almost meaningless when you consider the the harm caused by colonization in North America. So like trying to figure out precisely the percentage of people killed by smallpox is sort of it's it's misleading. It 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 redirects our attention away from um the the murderous ambition of settler colonial um uh takeover. And and the other thing I would say, Alexis, in response to what you're talking about is just how 
you know, this is a text that is about the fatal nature of fatalism, like that is about how uh, perilous it is to resign yourself to, as you say, suffering and death. Um, this moment where you're talking about tuberculosis and, 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 you know, which is a, a thing that persists in the present. You say, you know, I worry such fatalism serves to encourage passive inaction in the face of uh, the clear injustice, injustices inherent to the disease. So if we're overwhelmed and we can't name who to blame um, because the problem is too complex, then a kind of fatalism, I think, sets in. So the question I suppose is like, does it become strategically necessary to, I don't know, I, I hate to go there because we're talking about how revolution takes time and jumping to conclusions is often exactly the wrong move. Um, but to fight fatalism, do we have to be able to like name who is culpable? I mean, I think I think we need to, when we're trying to to act, right? I think it helps it's impossible to act without knowing what you're acting on. And I think that's why naming is helpful. Um, and I think, but what I think is really important is to, to recognize that names are, are tools. They're only useful um, in certain ways and contexts. And that sometimes if you're wanting to accomplish something, you might need to change the tool and you might need to change the name of uh, what you're um, actually trying to undo. And so, I, I think it's I think it's important to identify what the issues are, and I think, but I think to be really flexible with how you're, what lenses you're using to look at, because I think depending on the context, depending on what your goal is, depending on where you are in the journey of wanting to uh, dismantle a system, you might need to call it different things because you might need to bring certain allies on board, and calling it one way helps them to come on board, and then um, it might actually help to. Um, to analyze this one particular part of the problem and kind of chip away at that problem. So you name it in a different way. And I think, so I, I like to think of names and identifying as strategic tools that might shift depending on where you are in the context of the struggle, which I recognize is not a very popular, may not be a popular approach um, in many activist circles, but um, because I think to me, what's primal to me is the relationships of, of the people you're doing the work, the work with. And so whatever, Whatever name, whatever framing they use to understand the problem is something I think might be helpful for um, us as workers to adopt. I think one of the things that Alexis was saying about the pain, uh, the opioid crisis, it actually makes me think of what's happened with the issue around access to vaccines around COVID-19. And I think there's been a there's been a, quite a thread on the left of like people who are opposed to the vaccine because of where they come from. And it's been such an interesting kind of line to walk, even for me. It's like, yeah, I do not, I actually do not trust Pfizer. I do not trust Moderna. But they're, they now control tools that are actually life-saving. And I see on a day-to-day -day basis at work that they are life-saving. Like, how do I navigate that? And I think finding kind of meaningful places of resistance of like, what is actually going to dismantle Pfizer and Moderna's power is an interesting question. And I think people don't have the tools right now. And so they say, well, I'm just not gonna take the vaccine because that's like the bodily autonomy is the only sort of tool I have to resist this power. And really sort of kind of transforming that very individual, almost futile resistance into something that's actually going to take on corporate power. Yeah, for sure. It's like at what end 
of the supply chain do you do you direct your attention in terms of these products that either take life away or provide the means of of flourishing like um this is something that again in my health communication class we've collided with and it's it's tricky to for example teach mike davis's work the late mike davis's work um who just passed away um because of course you know davis is is an advocate of you know, free, open source, socialized medicine at, at every scale um, and believes in the possibility of a universal va- vaccine, the idea of it as a technological possibility that is really blocked by, um, you know, the, the profit motive effectively and the incapacity of the market to share information and to lead to this kind of collaborative exercise. And, you know, saying this in a class doesn't, it doesn't communicate in a way that is is as impactful as I I would hope that it would be, and it's interesting. Like for me, hearing you talk about, you know, the the sort of hard lines that people draw around whether to take the vaccine and who controls it and and who profits. Uh, to think about that in relationship to Davis's point that um, basically capitalism is ill suited and unsustainable to uh, provide. Um, you know, any of these sorts of life-saving, you know, medical innovations, because it's too focused on profit leaders, like, you know, drugs that fight erectile dysfunction or like, you know, heart medicines or whatever, right? Like these are the things that, you know, companies that many people don't even know their names uh, profit enormously off of. And so he says like, just break it, break it up. But to, to whom is it convincing to articulate just kind of an anti-capitalist politics of breaking up big pharma? Like, Davis's whole point was always like that, you know, socialists basically have to um, try to convince the public of the value of a kind of left populism almost that is just an expression of anger um, at the profiteering of these large companies and and to, you know, tap into some kind of radical demand for them to be broken up. But I have just found that that doesn't like there's simply no guarantee that that's going to resonate. Yeah. So, I mean, I think uh, this for me, this comes back to strategy, right? This comes back to what what are we actually trying to do here, and how would we know if we were doing it? So, like when you read a book like this, or you learn about big pharma or any of these things, um, there's this kind of impulse, almost, or a tendency to just feel like really overwhelmed, and and I think because so many of us are. Um, who talk about these things are situated in universities and in North America, universities are some of the only places that there's room for kind of intellectual work, right? That, that we come to think that the thing we have to do is to know more or to give people better information. Um, And that can just raising consciousness can just be a, a loop, right? That people feel like I have to know more. I have to understand more before I can do anything. Um, so, I mean, Mike Davis obviously was much more interested in like the intertwining of like, how do you know things and do things, um, and not learn about these histories and the like present complexity and just feel overwhelmed and like you are just need to give up. Um, so there's one part, I think reading the book where learning about the, these histories, can feel just so overwhelming, you know, um, and so difficult to just get any grip on. Um, at the very beginning, Baj, you say, you know, you're you're thinking about 
as a physician, thinking about the history of the places that you work is crucial and the history of how these these diseases have shaped the kind of medical practice that everyone does now. And you say, for me, this remembering cannot come down to a brief land acknowledgement at the beginning of each meeting. It comes through an exploration of my place within this process of learning and of unpacking that history. And then crucially, you say, and working to repair the damages it has wrought. So, so both in terms of like naming the enemies, but also in terms of working to repair the damage that it that they have everything has wrought capitalism and colonialism and how we're placed with it. It's really that it's not going to be just encouraging people to know more things. It's going to be finding ways for people to be collectively connected to struggle that does more than just remember, but that in an ongoing way explores what are our actual contexts. So I think like, and maybe this is a a question for you, Baj, like in this work, I really felt like it was so vital how you always came back to particular indigenous peoples in their particular places, working against the depredations of the Canadian state and the way that healthcare um, was leveraged as part of colonialism. And I, I felt like it was a, a that this this notion of of basically like collectivity and refusing to just feel alone or it felt to me like it was really an intimate part of the histories that you're telling here. Um, this attention to resistance. I don't know if I explicitly thought of it as resistance. I maybe thought of it as survival. There's so much, so much that goes on to this day that people just have to survive. Again, I think it goes back to what I said in the beginning of the this chat. Was like within my context, I just see people so isolated, so atomized. So again, I forget that resistances are knitted together through community and collectivity, you know? And I think what's really hard within the way we set up care systems currently is that it's we don't see that and there's no scope for that. And so I think a lot of this is happening outside of the healthcare system, obviously. I mean, I think a lot of work is happening outside of the healthcare system. But if we could find ways to kind of knit that um the collective experience of surviving as an individual, if we could kind of knit that together within healthcare spaces, I think we'd go a long way towards, you know, that idea of a revolution we were talking about earlier. And the other thing that I think that I I was maybe a little bit more explicit about in the book is to also say that, you know, settler colonialism in, in, in the Americas was a very particular experience. But I think it's also important to remember that it was part of a much larger global system and I think kind of the stories I think about uh, you know from my own family's experience in India and in other in other parts of um, the world such as in, in Africa or in, in Asia or um, uh, the Pacific I find that making those references also helps me sort of frame the experience and to recognize that when we are resisting something um, you know, we have to act within the, our local context, but it, it's so important to remember that this is a global system and that it's a product of something that's much larger than here alone. And so when we feel like, oh, you know, this is, it's hard to win. It's like we're not moving anywhere. 
to think about where else that there is action and resistance and people surviving and, and to make sure we're connecting to them because, you know, it shifts a little bit over there one day, it'll shift over here a little bit one day, and and we need to be able to tell, tell each other those stories just so that we see, okay, the, the whole thing, the whole monster is being eaten away or shifting or whatever whatever metaphor you want to use for dismantling, that we actually stay connected to the, the idea that it's a global system and there's global resistances. Yeah, wow. Um, you know, I wanted to thank you for putting the book together. Um, it is uh, more than worth people's time. It's a, I'm still, and I think Alexis is still like working through some of these questions that you're raising, like especially the questions, but also these kind of um, provisional moves to a kind of radical hope where you say in the book, you know, we're coming to a revolution in the way we understand infectious disease as part of our relationship with our environment and with each other in a collective healthcare approach. Um, and you're saying like the thing, the, the ideas we have are are too limited, and even the experts that we have are sort of too limited in their worldview. Like they they perhaps need to ask the kinds of self-critical questions that you're asking. Like, you know, where do the actual standards that one uses to quantify well-being derive from, rather than just as Alexis was saying, merely remembering them. Um, how can we understand the ways that there are these like reverberations uh, from the past that that persist in the present and maybe don't uh, allow us, you know, to properly embrace this kind of revolution, both in thinking and in practice? That is one only one of the many things that I took away from reading this book. So thanks very, very much for writing it. It's It's so rewarding for the reader. I'll just echo that. It's such a it's such a wonderful book and I'm going to be sharing it with everyone and trying to have lots and lots of people read it. Thanks both of you for being such generous readers. I, I, I uh, really appreciate um, the attention with which you read the book and also for this conversation. It's made me push some of my own thinking on this step forward. So appreciate your time and your energy. Happy to give it. Thanks for convening us, Scott. Of course, yeah. yeah.